Oh, forgot my Bible. You guys can be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 again today. Continuing from where we were last week, looking at what the Scriptures had to say about whether or not repentance was possible, specifically addressing the issue of homosexuality and LGBTQ desire. Is repentance possible? We looked at uh, a number of studies, and indeed, even if you accept the world's sort of playbook on the human soul, that of modern psychology and psychiatry, we found that indeed repentance is possible, in fact, likely, if you're committed to it. You can change your sexual orientation without harm. This morning, I want to look, though, more at the Scriptures. I want to really focus our attention in on a particular, a particular aspect of what, what the Lord is trying to say to us and what He would say, what He is saying, in fact, to uh, the world around us. And so I want you to look specifically this morning in Romans chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at verses 24 and uh, down to verse 27. So as is our custom, I will, I'll read the Scriptures for you this morning. And then we'll pause for prayer, ask the Lord to help us with His Holy Spirit, and then we'll get to work. Romans 1, 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring. And that's really the key word that I want to draw your attention to this morning. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26 For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion. For one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let's pause for a moment and ask the Lord to help us. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for your word and its clarity. We thank you, Lord, that when you speak, there can be no doubt about your intention for who we are as you have created us in your own image. Lord, you have made us spiritual beings with a heart and a soul that is capable of interacting with you on the spiritual plane, that we might know you and have a relationship with you. And yet, Lord, as C.S. Lewis refers to us, we are amphibious-type creatures in that we have a soul and we're capable of relating to you spiritually, but we also have a physical body. Lord, our prayer this morning is as we consider these issues again for a second time, that we would understand that how we use these physical bodies that you have given to us impacts directly how we have a relationship with you in the spiritual realm. Lord, help us to understand today exactly what it means to dishonor our bodies through LGBTQ sexual desires. Do this, we pray, God, according to your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Direct quote. There was my shame ubiquitously sitting in the middle of it all. This is the testimony of an individual who from a very young age experienced homosexual desire, homosexual lust. And he makes this really profound comment that as he was struggling with these desires from a very early age, as he's coming into puberty, he identifies these desires as wrong. This individual, Greg Johnson, was not raised in a Christian home. He was raised in a very secular home. His parents were both self-identified as atheists. They didn't believe in any God, let alone the one true God. And they raised him in a home in which they encouraged a wide range of morality that wasn't rooted in anything authoritative like the scriptures or any other kind of religious tradition. 
And essentially, they taught him evolution and atheism and all the tenets that go with that. And yet, nevertheless, he makes an interesting comment that from the moment that he started to experience puberty, he started to go through puberty, and he began to experience these desires, he says, and I quote, there was my shame ubiquitously sitting there in the middle of it all. He goes on to say, no one ever had to convince me that I was defective, his words. No one ever had to convince me that I was defective. No one ever had to convince me that a sexual relationship with another guy was simply out of the question. Even as an atheist, I could see clearly how the male and female reproductive organs were coordinated and complementary to each other in order to create children. He says, I saw that clearly from the moment I was just going through puberty. He says, quote, no one at that moment ever had to tell me that I was a sinner. I knew. I knew. Again, before ever hearing about Jesus, later on in his teenage years, he recounts getting down by the side of his bed at night before he's getting ready to go to sleep and praying this prayer. God, he prays, I don't know who or what you are, but I don't know what to do with these feelings. Will you please forgive me? Will you forgive me for being gay? The shame, he says, ran deep. Last week, I was wrestling with the question before all of you, is God's word true in the sense, is repentance possible? But this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at it more from the scriptures, and I'd like to begin to wrestle with the question, why is it that individuals who identify as LGBTQ, individuals who struggle with either gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction, homosexual desire, why do they feel shame? Ostensibly, the reason why our government is passing legislation that outlaws all conversion therapy and all kinds of conversations around these issues is because their belief, their contention, is that the shame that people feel in society is the result of a cultural pressure that is rooted in ignorance. We're simply not progressive enough in the way that we look at the world. And so when we talk about these issues, we talk about them in a disparaging way. And individuals who have homosexual desires hear those disparaging comments and they feel, as a result, ashamed of their orientation. This feeling of shame, the government says, is harmful. Therefore, we have to prohibit all speech that might be construed in such a way as to make an individual feel ashamed of their sexual orientation. Now, Greg Johnson tells us he was raised in a home that was atheistic, that encouraged a wide diversity of morality, and despite this, he felt from a very early age, he felt ashamed. And so as we look at the scriptures this morning, the question that I think we need to wrestle with and that we need to answer from God's word Is it a matter of shame, or is it the reality of guilt? When the world tries to affirm us in our actions, is it right to diminish this feeling? And then when we look at this feeling, is it truly a feeling of shame, or is the government trying to diminish the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As Jesus says in John chapter 15, the Holy Spirit, the helper who has been sent to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. For any individual who's within the hearing of my voice this morning who might struggle with same-sex attraction, I want you to know, as we looked at last week, change is possible. Repentance is possible. You can also begin to work on this character transformation as we saw last week, without experiencing psychological harm. That is the myth. There is no harm in these things. But you nevertheless may feel shame. And what I want to do this morning is I don't want to muzzle the Holy Spirit of God that might be working in your heart. 
Rather, what I think is best, what I think is wisest, and in obedience to my God, what I know to be most loving is to unmuzzle, unleash that Holy Spirit. And for you to begin wrestling with the question, is this shame or is this guilt? Look with me, Romans chapter 1. Paul makes the statement in verse 24. says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature, the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Now, this verse doesn't just hit us right here in the middle of a vacuum. It doesn't come out of nowhere. This verse is to be understood within the larger context of Romans chapter one. And what Paul is doing is here in Romans chapter one, he is making a very strong Christian apologetic for the fact that it is obvious that there is a God out there. That we cannot deny what is clear, what is straightforward, what doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out or to discern, that there is a God that is out there. Paul begins this argument all the way back in verse 18. This is his propositional statement. This is his thesis statement. He says in verse 18 that the wrath of God, present tense, happening in real time, happening right now, I might add, is revealed. God's wrath is being right now revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who are suppressing that unrighteousness, who are suppressing that truth by their unrighteousness, Paul says in verse 18. And he goes on to say, what can be known about God is plain to them, or it is obvious. It doesn't take a rocket scientist, Paul says. Everybody can see that there's a God. And he grounds that conclusion in the inescapable truth of the created order around us. He looks to the stars and the sky. He looks at the, the motions, the weather patterns, the changing of the calendar, all these things. And he says, what can be known about God is obvious. It is plain, he says in, in verse 19, because God has shown it to them. Psalm 19 says, there is no speech whose voice is not heard. And in talking about creation, it says, their voice goes out to the ends of the world. Everybody knows there's a God just by looking at the world around us. And Paul echoes that argument here. He says, for what can be known about God is plain, it's obvious, God has shown it to him. Verse 20, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, this is echoed later on in the, pa- in the chapter talking about homosexuality. Look with me, verse 25. It says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That is the concluding argument that he makes in the beginning of the chapter. Right as he says that these things have been clearly perceived, that they're obvious, he makes a statement in verse 20, 21. They, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then in verse 23, he says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So God, Paul's point in Romans chapter 1, God's word to us here in Romans chapter 1, is that we would be able to see that everybody knows that there is a God. That everybody is capable of seeing by looking at the world around us that there is God. So they have no excuse. There is no excuse, as Paul is going to say in chapter 2 and verse 1. There is no one who is going to come before the Lord at the end of his life as he dies and passes into the afterlife. When he comes and he stands before the judgment seat of God, there is no one that is going to be able to look at God and in any intellectually defensible way say, I had no idea you were real. We all know he's real. This is where the argument of homosexuality comes in. Paul says, verse 24 now, transitioning away from the created order, he's saying just look at how our bodies are made. He says in verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, and he repeats the refrain, they exchanged the glory of God for the creature. They stopped worshiping the creator and they started worshiping the creature. This is seen in homosexuality. And in case you're not sure that he's speaking of homosexuality, he makes it explicit in verses 26 and following. It says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged 
natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That expression, natural relations, what Paul is getting at is that it is apparent if you look at male and female anatomy, that they go together like a hand in a glove. If you are to experience any kind of sexual pleasure within the same gender, one of the things that you discover almost instantaneously upon the entertaining of those thoughts is that whereas when it comes to heterosexual relationships, God has appointed the two to naturally go together like a hand in a glove, you don't find that it will work the same way when you have two men or two women. There is no corresponding organ that will complement the other gender's organ. That is as graciously as I can say that. I know we have kids in the room this morning. I advised you to send them downstairs, but if you kept them, that's okay. But now it's on you to explain all these things later on in the day, all right? The Word of God is clear. Paul uses this expression, natural. Natural. He says, specifically, he says here in verse 26, their women exchanged natural relations. That is, according to God's design, which is so clear in nature, that men are to be with women and women are to be with men. That's natural. God says that contrary to nature, they exchanged those relationships for relationships that are contrary to nature. And he says in verse 27, the men likewise, okay, So it says the women gave up natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. But he doesn't say exactly what. You know, he's not saying, like, what's going on here just yet. And uh, But he makes it clear in verse 27. He says the men, verse 27, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with other men. So in verse 27, he makes it clear that men were having sexual intercourse with other men. Then at the beginning of verse 27, it says the men likewise. You see that word likewise? So what he is saying in verse 27 ties back to what he's saying in verse 26. So when it says the women gave up relationships that were natural, he isn't explicit there in that particular verse that women we're having sexual intercourse with other women. But that is made explicit in verse 27 when he says this is what the men were doing. They were trying to have sexual intercourse with other men. And he uses that word likewise to refer back to verse 26, implying quite clearly that that's what the women were doing as well. And all of this is grounded in this truth. Verse 26, God gave them up to, he says, dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions. Now, the result of these dishonorable passions is that we are increasingly embarrassed and ashamed. Individuals who identify as same-sex attracted, individuals who identify as LGBTQ. There is this sense of shame that attaches with it. That's why this movement is closely associated with the cultural idiomatic expression coming out of the closet. Now, this expression has a long history. It has two different types of connotations. Dating back to the 60s, it referred to individuals who proudly presented themselves to their community as an eligible bachelor or an eligible bachelorette. It actually has its roots in the old-school debutante balls going all the way back to uh, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, in which a lady of the court would have a debutante ball in which she would come out and present herself uh, to the eligible bachelors as someone who is ready to date, to be dated, to be courted, to be pursued romantically. And so in the early 60s, within the gay community, within the homosexual community, They would have these coming out parties that were done very privately within the community. And then as we worked our way into the 80s and in the 90s, this expression coming out took on a different connotation, the one that our scriptures are addressing today, this idea that there is something that you're ashamed of, that you're embarrassed about, that perhaps you would rather keep secret. 
And so the struggle within the homosexual community at that time, as it became more and more widespread and more and more wide, widely known, was do we, does this individual want to come out? And that led to the further idiomatic expression, you know, oh, he outed him. In other words, this individual didn't want his sexuality be, to be known. He wanted to remain in the closet. Uh, but a friend of his who was aware of his sexual orientation uh, let it slip or perhaps maliciously divulged it that he was gay. He outed him. Okay? And I can honestly say, and I'm sure all of us can, that I have thrown people under the bus in fun. I have outed them for various things, all in, all in jest, never anything as serious as this. But that is the history of that expression. This expression speaks to the reality that within the gay community, within the LGBTQ community, there is this inherent sense of shame. Greg Johnson, raised as an atheist, said there was sitting in the middle of it all, ubiquitously, my shame. The shame ran deep. And now the government wants us to all understand that the reason for that shame is because we speak of these things in a pejorative manner, and we speak disparagingly of it. But Paul's statement here is that the passions are dishonorable. That's the word he uses to describe it. What does Paul mean when he uses this word dishonorable? Uh, at a very basic level, BDAG, one of the probably the preeminent Greek-English dictionary lexicon of the New Testament, defines this term as that which causes insult, that which causes shame. I can recall as a very young man uh, attending Dripping Springs Middle School, I was with my dad walking along one day, and uh, we, had, we were at a basketball practice, and my dad was my little league uh, basketball, peewee basketball coach on my team. And there was at the, uh, the elementary school where we were having practice, there was this, uh, this replica of the space shuttle. And I saw this replica of the space shuttle there at uh, Dripping Springs Elementary School, and it, it, was, it looked real. I, I saw it in the dark. I remember the first time I saw it, it was after dark. It was late at night. It was winter. We had coming out of a basketball practice. And I saw it, and there were a whole bunch of people that were fil filtering through the school hallway at that time. Other grade levels had, had their basketball practices, and so there was a whole bunch of kids ranging from, like, grade 1 to, like, grade 7, you know, walking down the hallway. And I saw this thing this space shuttle, American space shuttle. It looked like a space shuttle. And I said to my dad, Dad, was that the space shuttle? And my dad, he has a tendency, as all clay camp men do, to hear questions and to think long and hard before answering. Uh, my children will often ask me a question. I'll sit there and I'll just think about it for a long time and then forget to answer them. So my dad heard my question, didn't necessarily say anything right away, and I said it again louder because my dad, like all clay camp men, started losing his hearing. And so I said it louder, Dad, that was a real space shuttle, wasn't it? And the kids right in front of me began to laugh uproariously. Oh, that kid, oh, he's so dumb. He thinks that's a real space shuttle sitting in the yard out there at, Ele at Dripping Springs Elementary School. And I remember hearing them laughing as I'm walking along with my dad, and I remember them laughing, and I, I remember feeling embarrassed. And so the response of my heart was anger. Hey, how am I supposed to know the difference? There was a sort of rage that came in that moment, not godly. Don't misunderstand me. But in terms of feeling put down, in terms of feeling ashamed, the response of the human heart is one of anger and justification. To contrast this with individuals who have been born with genetic disabilities, individuals who may uh, struggle with autism, there is sometimes this feeling of jealousy when they consider other kids who don't have the same struggles that they have as a result of genetic differences. Jealousy, a desire to be the same as them. 
In one instance, there's embarrassment that leads to anger. And in another instance, there is jealousy or a desire to want to be the same as someone else. Now, I present both of these to you this morning because what Paul says here in terms of dishonorable passions is not that we're hearing something and we're feeling embarrassment and anger over hearing something that makes us feel ashamed. And what Paul presents here is not something that we are legitimately deficient in, in terms of uh, we recognize there's something genetically deficient in what's going on with us and we wish we were the same as other people. Given the context of this passage, Paul says these desires are contrary to nature, and as a result of that being contrary to nature, they are in and of themselves dishonorable passions. What he's describing is a sin that is being committed that is more heinous than just anger or just wanting to be like everyone else. I would describe the meaning of this word in this way. What Paul is getting at here is similar to a high school bully. And in fact, I can recall a time in high school in which there was a young man who was pressured. He, he was you know, socially awkward, what we might call nerdy. This isn't my story. I'm not talking about me. <laughs> Although I was also nerdy in high school as well. But this was a young man who was bullied, clearly bullied. And they wanted his lunch money. They wanted his lunch money, so they go spend it on their food at the cafeteria at lunchtime. And he wouldn't do it, because that was his lunch money. And he was a weaker kid, and they, they were the older, uh, stronger, more athletic, you know, the jock-type cool kids. And they would bully this kid, and he just would refuse to give his money. And they wouldn't outright hit him, because that might land them into detention or in-school suspension. But they would bully him. And in fact, one day, what they did was, in order to make him feel utterly ashamed, in order to make him feel utterly embarrassed, they went into the men's bathroom, and they took a cup from the cafeteria, and they scooped up a cup full of urine from the toilet, and they threw it on him at lunch, so that he would smell like urine all throughout the day. And in all of the classes that this kid went to throughout the day, as the, the urine dried, he reeked. And that was their intention, to insult him, to horrifically demean him, to degrade him, and to make him disgusting in the eyes of others. Now, when Paul says that these passions led to the dishonoring of their bodies, the real thrust of this word in Greek can be better compared to those bullies bullying that kid by throwing urine on him in order to make him revolting in the eyes of those around him. You say, whoa, that is a pretty strong statement. Indeed it is. All of it is rooted in Paul's larger argument in which he is saying it is clear that we've been given bodies by God, that these bodies have been created by him for specific purposes. You can understand God's calling on your life to a certain degree by whether or not you are a man or a woman. You can understand that calling because you have certain apparatus that doesn't enable you to do certain things and simultaneously enables you to do other things. As a man, for example, I can tell you today, I am not called by God ever to bear children, or to go through the wonderful miracle of childbirth. I don't have the apparatus. Therefore, I can say, because God did not make me with a uterus, with, with the capacity to bear children in my womb, because God did not give me this apparatus, God's desire for my life is not that I should directly bear children. And vice versa. As a man... If you're a woman, God has not given you certain apparatus to do the things that God has clearly called men to do. Men are stronger. And again, I don't, you know, this is where we start to drift off into some dangerous territory. I just want to be clear in my words here. There are some really hoss women out there, all right? I'm not saying that there's no such thing as a woman that can... You know, I'm sure there are women out there that can arm wrestle me into tears, okay? That's fine. But generally speaking, if I may, men, generally speaking, are stronger than women. Generally speaking, they are able to go out into that field 
and farm or work, as the case may be, whatever their occupation is, they are able to do those things and they're able to undergo a far greater amount of stress in the pursuit of those things than women are. And why would God do it this way? Well, the idea being that women are called to go through an equal amount of, I would say greater amount of stress in the process of childbearing, and they're called to raise those kids, to nurture those kids, whereas men are called to go out and to use that physical strength to provide. All of this is a wonderful, wonderful, beautifully created thing that God has given us. And so if you're a woman today, I can tell you, God's calling on your life, it might absolutely be to go out and get a job. Don't get me wrong. It might absolutely be to do any number of a variety of different things. But you need to understand, specifically to you, you're capable of doing something that others are not. Men are not capable of bearing children. And so in this way, we see within God's created order that these passions led to the dishonoring of our bodies because what could be clearly understood, what could be clearly perceived, resulted in us just setting aside all of the created order in order to have our own way regardless. We know when we look at ourselves that it is not the intention of our creator to engage in sexual behavior with individuals of the same gender. It is unmistakable. And therefore, when we persist in these desires, that feeling of shame does not go away because it is not a feeling of shame. It is a feeling of guilt. You know you're acting in a manner that transgresses God's order, his calling on your life, his purposes for the way that he made you. You can make it illegal for Christians to talk about these things. You can encourage and affirm, and you can appoint all kinds of different societies and different mental health organizations to continue to affirm these things. But you cannot change biology, and you cannot overthrow the image of God that he has given you. And all attempts to do so only lead to the destabilization and ultimately the destruction of our culture and our society. You are made male, a man, or you are made a female, a woman. And God's intention in that is that you would feel desire for the opposite gender as you, that you would only express that desire in the bond of a loving marital relationship. And that the natural blessing of God upon that union would be the giving of children. That is the truth of Scripture. This is a question that we wrestle with. Is this something that we are born with? Is it genetic? Is this something that we're responsible for? Homosexual LGBTQ individuals, they understand, look, I get it, I'm a man, or I get it, I'm a woman, as the case may be. But nevertheless, I feel these urges. Where exactly do these urges come from? If you look back at the history of this particular sin within the scriptures, I don't want you to flip there, but we go back to the first case of this, the famous, or I should say infamous, Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis chapter 19, Abraham is encountering this city in a conversation that he has with God. And a little later on, Abraham's nephew, Lot, who is living in Sodom, is rescued by a couple of angels who are sent by God as he is in the midst of preparing to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. The text reads, referring to this city and the inhabitants who lived there, the text reads that these angels have come, they are now in Lot's house, and the men of the city want to rape these two individuals whom they mistake as being men like themselves. So it says in Genesis 19, 5-9, they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. There's no, uh, there's no sort of seduction here. There's no foreplay. It's like, hey, bring those guys out here. We're ready to rape them. I mean, that's basically what they're saying. It is that violent. So Lot goes out to them. What a wonderfully virtuous option he gives them. Lot goes out to them. He shuts the door behind him and he says, Men, I beg you, don't act so wickedly. I have two daughters who have not known any man. 
Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Right on lot. Great choice. Great choice. I don't think he's going to get a gift on Father's Day. I'm just going to throw that out there. Their response was, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn among us, but now he has become the judge. In other words, their rage at Lot was that he was standing in judgment on their homoerotic sexual desire. Notice what they say. They say, bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot says, don't do this wicked thing. Their response is, uh, this guy has come to live with us, and now he is our judge. So they don't like the fact that he's judging their behavior. And they say to him, now we will, duel, we will deal worse with you than with them. So the intention from the beginning was that they were going to rape these guys. Lot says, hey, that's kind of a wicked thing. Rather than raping them, why don't you rape my daughters? And they're like, oh, you're going to judge us? Oh, well, now we're going to do to you worse than what we're going to do to those guys. It is a horrific scene. It is absolutely mind-boggling, ghastly, tragic, revolting in every sense. But at its heart is homosexual desire. And the text tells us that it was the men of the town. The impression there is that all of the men of Sodom have come to do this, which I find really interesting from a sociological perspective because as we look at the numbers in our world today, somewhere between 1% and 3%, allegedly, of the population identifies as LGBTQ, and yet within the city of Sodom, it was 100% of the men there are engaged in this kind of behavior. This idea of social contagion is real. When something is celebrated within a society, when something comes to be applauded and heralded as good and wonderful, eventually all of the individuals within that society begin to partake in it and begin to engage in it. Genesis chapter 18, the passage just before, in which God is walking with Abraham and discussing the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah, God makes this statement. It says in Genesis 18, verse 20, The Lord then said to Abraham, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. This is why the Lord is going to destroy these cities. Is the issue then purely a matter of external behavior? Is the reason that we feel shame Because we've acted upon these desires, we found that it was not emotionally fulfilling. You'll recall that is the number one reason, even apart from religious reasons, that was the number one reason why individuals sought conversion therapy. As I mentioned last week, they didn't find it emotionally satisfying. And so the question that we are confronted with from the scriptures, do these desires produce shame and guilt only when they are acted upon? Or does that shame and that guilt come before we act upon them? Ezekiel chapter 16, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, discussing the issue of what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah, makes this statement, condemning multiple cities at this time, multiple nations at this time for a multitude of sins. But nonetheless, God, speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, touches on Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel 16, 49, Behold, God says through the prophet Ezekiel, this was the guilt. Notice that expression. Not shame. God says, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. But they did not aid the poor and the needy. And you read that verse and you think, whoa, I was thinking that when God begins to talk about the guilt of Sodom and Gomorrah, he would start right off the bat with wanting to rape men, wanting to rape men and have homosexual intercourse and all this kind of stuff. But God doesn't trace the issue to the homosexual behavior. You'll notice he traces it to the heart. And the heart of the issue is this. They had pride. He starts off saying they were proud of themselves. 
He goes on. He says, they had lots of food. They had ease. This was a prosperous village, a prosperous town. And yet when the poor and the needy and the destitute were among them, they did nothing to help their fellow man. They thought that these people were beneath them. They looked upon themselves with this haughty, arrogant, self-righteous perspective. And they would do nothing with all the blessings that God had given them in terms of material prosperity. They would do nothing to help their fellow man. That is the sin. God is pointing to you right off the hot. They were proud. They were haughty. In their hearts, there was a spiritual sickness that went beneath purely external behavior. And the verse goes on. He says, this was the guilt of your Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food. Verse 50, he goes on, they were haughty. In other words, they didn't see this pride of theirs as something that was a character flaw. They celebrated it. Yeah, that's right. We're Sodom. And then God says, they were haughty and they did abomination before me. What does that mean? Leviticus 18.22, the first time God uses the word abomination in the law of Moses, he uses it to describe his attitude regarding homosexual behavior. Verse Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. This word abomination is so weighty. It combines the idea of revulsion and rage. God is revolted by it, and he must come and do judgment and enact justice against it. This is the character of God. This word abomination includes both of these things. And so we often will say from the pulpit, you know, if, you're, if you struggle with same-sex desires, if you struggle with homosexual lust, that is not any different than a heterosexual man struggling with heterosexual lust. And indeed, it's not in terms of the condemnation that it brings from the Lord. Once we sin in our hearts, we are guilty before the Lord. But it is a mistake for us to say that all sins are equal in terms of their ambition or in terms of their effect. Is homosexual sin a worse sin than other sins? Evangelical Christians have historically understood that in some sense it has to be because, after all, there aren't a whole bunch of cities out there that were wiped off the face of the map by means of fire and brimstone falling from heaven because of God's direct decree of judgment against them. This is Sodom and Gomorrah. And so... Christians have understood that while, yes, all sin is equal in bringing condemnation before the Lord, it is a mistake to say that all sin is equal in terms of the disastrous and society-destroying effects that it produces. And in this sense, we have to say that homosexuality and LGBTQ desires are more destructive. It is tempting, again, for us to say otherwise. But again, in context... The Bible makes it clear that there is a certain degree of ambition that is involved where some sins are so deeply rooted in an obvious conscious rebellion against God that they amount to a blatant disobedience, a blatant and willful refusal to believe the truth. That's when you act on homosexual desire, when you have these desires and these attractions in your heart that you know are wrong, yet you attempt to justify your behavior and you attempt to pursue these sinful actions, this is what you are doing. Paul makes that clear in Romans 1. We know it's wrong. To persist in it is to defy God and to refuse to believe God. Now, if you're still in Romans 1... I want you to see something else that's going on here. Paul Paul says in Romans 1 that God has given us up to these things because of our unrighteousness. In verse 24, he says it three times. If you look at verse 24, it says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. He repeats it again in verse 26. It says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then he says it again in verse 28. He says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. When, when God makes all of these different statements in Romans chapter 1, the idea here is that his judgment is coming upon our world. 
because we're desiring things that we ought not to desire. We struggle with the question, aren't we born this way? Didn't God make us this way? And there's a whole movement afoot from the government down to our pop stars and you know, cultural singers, the, the musicians and the vocalists that put out music. There's this, this overwhelming societal urge to affirm people in what they're doing. Lady Gaga in 2011 released her Born This Way album. I'm sure you've heard of it. Nobody's raising their hands. Nobody wants to admit. Yeah, I've heard of it. I've heard of it. I listen to the radio sometimes driving down the road. I'll admit, I've heard this song sung. They say, well, what is the song about? Lady Gaga, Born This Way, 2011 album by the same title, Born This Way. No matter gay, straight, or bi, lesbian, transgender life. She kind of draws out that life. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born to survive. No matter black, white, or beige, hola, I'm not sure what she's actually saying there. The lyrics spell it C-H-O-L-A. Or orient made, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born to be brave. I was born this way. I was born to be brave. I'm beautiful, she goes on, in my way, because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. And then she makes this statement, don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're all set. What she's trying to do is she's trying to wrestle with the mental health concerns that attach themselves to homosexual desire. There's a reason why people struggle with feeling comfortable as a homosexual or LGBTQ. And the reason is because deep down we know it's wrong. So Lady Kaka comes out and she sings this song in which she's trying to encourage people that there's nothing wrong, just feel okay. And yet, overwhelmingly, the statistics show that the number one reason why homosexual LGBTQ individuals pursue conversion therapy or counseling is because they're depressed and they're not emotionally satisfied. It is not because of religious reasons. It is not because, by their own admission, there's any conflict between their belief in God and the way that they're living. Now, there was a statistically significant number of individuals who did acknowledge faith as a driver for why they chose to pursue conversion therapy. But the number one reason, overwhelmingly, was that there was no joy in it. They were left dissatisfied. We're telling people, you're born this way, you're born this way, you're born this way. It's natural. Just go with it. Is that true? Paul seems to indicate in his argument in Romans 1 that we were not born this way, that these desires are contrary to nature. I don't expect that the world would listen to something as priceless and as beautiful as the Word of God. So the question, and I always go back to this, what do your own prophets say? those purveyors of modern psychology and psychiatry, what do they say? 2019, a study was released. It was the most comprehensive study of its time. Uh, Gana was the researcher, lead researcher's name. It was released in 2019, published in the Journal of Science. And this study by Andrea Gana, she's the lead author in the, uh, for the European Molecular Biology Laboratory Group. And she published, again, as I said, in the Journal of Science, this study that involved 470,000 individuals. In terms of funding and in terms of scope and comprehensive analysis, this is one of the largest studies of its kind. I I would say, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I would say probably the largest study of its kind ever conducted. They looked at the genome sequencing of over 470,000 individuals who identified as homosexual or transgender or some form of LGBTQ. They looked at their genomes. They looked at their genes, their genetic uh, components, and they tried to see if there was a common gene related to sexual expression that they all shared in common. They tried, in other words, to verify that there was some genetic cause for homosexual behavior. 
that in fact these people were, quote-unquote, born this way. And do you know what they found? They shared less than 1% of their genes in common. The closest possible gene that might have something to do with sexual expression is actually more closely associated with your sense of smell, your olfactories, and your nose. But even at that, they found only 1% of participants shared that gene. And they're not really sure that that has anything to do with sexual expression anyway. But the point that I'm trying to make, and what this study convincingly concluded was this, there is no genetic cause for sexual expression. It is not rooted in your genes. You are not born this way. It is not how God made you. Your own psychiatrists and psychologists are saying this. Nevertheless, hear the word of God. Scripture says, for this reason, God has given them up to dishonorable passions. Well, what was the reason? What was the reason why we started to pursue these dishonorable passions? What was the reason why we even started to have these dishonorable passions? It's not genetic. It's not genetic. Scripture says that although they knew God and although they knew the truth, they suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. The issue is one of worship. The issue is one of who will be God of your life. The issue is and will always be that you are an individual created in the image of a holy God, that he has made you specifically how you are, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist says in Psalm 139. And despite all your attempts, despite all your efforts to try and rewrite society and to try to suppress this truth and to organize it in such a way that you never have to hear what the scriptures say about these things, you will never ever be able to silence the image of God that he has implanted upon you as he has formed and made you to be as himself, not in every respect, you're not God, but to have a relationship with him through the natural gifts, the natural and unique abilities and talents that he has formed on you at the center of which, at the core of which is your identity as either a man or a woman called by God if you are to have a sexual relationship, to do so in faithful obedience to him with an individual of the opposite gender, man and wife, in the bond of marriage for life, separating only upon death. And you know God has called you to that. Your own researchers say it. Your own scientific journals say it. But before we had any of this modern so-called science that was peer-reviewed. We always had God clearly telling us this in his word, but also in our ability to naturally observe the world around us. And so, if you're hearing me today and you're struggling with same-sex attraction, and you know that it is a sin for which God will judge you and send you to hell, I'd like to give you some biblical counsel. So we're publishing this live on Facebook, social media, Twitter, YouTube. And I am going to offer you some biblical advice. The world would probably call it conversion therapy or something like this. But what I want to do is I want to help you. Number one, give your life to Jesus Christ. If you haven't done so already, repent of your sins. Make a switch. Jesus is the most beautiful person in the world, and he can save you. He can deliver you from this struggle. Acknowledge both the presence and the pain of a disordered sexuality with all of the ambiguity of where it might have come from when you first started feeling, started to have these feelings. You can acknowledge all of that and yet not define yourself or your person, your God-given identity, according to your disordered sexuality. If you would want to reorient, it is possible. And even amongst those individuals who continue to experience same-sex attraction, nevertheless, you are not to be understood. You are not to be defined. You are not to be identified as an individual who is homosexual or lesbian or transgender. You are a child of God made in his image, and it is his desire for you from now until the Lord Jesus comes back, that you would be known as a Christian, not known according to a disordered 
sinful sexuality. Number two, put your faith in Christ alone to someday deliver you. It may not happen all at once. In fact, there's good reason, good evidence to believe that whenever conversion therapy does happen, whenever a person converts, it takes two to four years. However, we can trust that someday Jesus will deliver you. Absolutely. And whether it is sooner or later, Jesus does deliver you from all of your sins. He gives you forgiveness for all that you have done. And he can give you the gift of God's righteousness and the fulfillment of all of his promises to you. The only sinner who can fight against their sin, and this includes LGBTQ sinners, the only sinner who can fight successfully against his sin is an individual who is trusted in Jesus Christ and fights alongside the risen Lord Jesus. There is no hope for any individual, regardless of whatever conversion therapy you've been through. You will not be delivered of your sin unless Jesus is the one delivering you. Number three, with Christ's help, begin to reorder not merely your sexuality, that's a good place to start, but reorder your whole life around the centrality of the glory of God as your highest treasure, not around whether or not you're capable of having sexual experiences of one kind or the other. Jesus is your treasure. Number four, with Jesus as your treasure, resolve to live a chaste and, if necessary, celibate life by the power of God's Spirit. Church, this is something that we have done a horrible job of affirming. Even within our circles, we talk about individuals who are single, and we say, oh, wouldn't it be so wonderful if that individual met someone and got married? And I understand why we say these things, and of course, none of us ever means mean these types of expressions in a, in a malicious or a mean-spirited kind of way, but for the individual who is single, that can be hurting. That can be critical to them. In talking with some of our single ladies, they find their lives are very fulfilled in serving the church, working amongst God's people, ministering. They do not in any way feel deficient just because they're not married. For the homosexual individual, they may never feel sexual desire or attraction for someone of the opposite gender. They may never be able to marry in good conscience. It's possible, but they may never be able to do it. And will we always think of them as somehow deficient? That would be sinful for all of us. We have to celebrate celibacy, that is living your life chaste and pure before the Lord, single, as a legitimate option within the church. And maybe for those individuals who struggle with same-sex attraction, it's not merely a legitimate option for them. It might be their only option. Regardless, it will be the necessary thing to do. Number five, this is something that I would have counseled anyone to do as a biblical counselor long before I read all these research reports and journals and studies. But number five, I want to give it to you straight up. What the research shows and what biblical counseling actually shows is that we are successful in fighting against our sin when we do so in fellowship and company with other believers. Therefore, give yourself to the church and specifically seek out wholesome friendships with both genders, but specifically seek out wholesome, non-sexual friendships with individuals of the same gender. And I know you're thinking, well, why would you do that? Because men who feel an ungodly, sinful attraction for other men need to walk alongside men in order to understand how we are to live out our lives before Christ as men created to be men. Will that lead to the potential of temptation? It surely will. Nevertheless, Scripture says that the men are to teach, the older men are to teach the younger men, and the older women are to teach the younger women. And what we have found in all of the psychological research and all of the studies that I've looked at is that this has been one of the single most helpful things for individuals seeking to change their sexual orientation is just to have a healthy, normal friendship with someone that was not a part of the gay movement or living the gay lifestyle or in some way trying to tempt them or seduce them or other, 
other things of this nature, just to walk with such a man and to see how that man worships God and to try to imitate that man in his own worship of the Lord. And so if you're here or if you're out there listening online and you're looking to be free of your sexual sin, give yourself to the church. Walk in accountability with other believers and worship Jesus Christ. It's always interesting. I have more things I could say, and there's more pages of manuscript here, but the time has escaped us. I apologize for going on as long as I have. Friend, if you're listening on the internet, I want you to know that God loves you, and he can save you. Whether you pursue him or not, in love, I have to share this with you. As you persist in your sin, you will never feel comfortable no matter how you might reorient or change the society around you. The only one that can save you and make you feel whole and give you the satisfaction of your heart is the Lord Jesus Christ. Give yourself to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just say thank you for your word and its clarity to us. Father, our prayer is for all those brothers and sisters out there who have surrendered their lives to you, who are trying to walk in purity with you. I pray, God, that you would show them clearly from your word, regardless of what society says, your standard has not changed. Your call for holiness has not changed. And you still desire them to walk in purity and righteousness before you. And help them to see, Lord, that despite all of the naysayers and the quitters and the doubters who say such a thing is not possible and should not be encouraged and produces harm, show them that it is glorious and it brings your blessing. Father, for any who have never trusted in you, be it LGBTQ or anyone, Lord, help them to see that their sin brings them into judgment before you. And help them to confess and to believe in what you've done for them on the cross. Lord, we love you. And we just say thank you for your word. God, be glorified one way or the other, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.